Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. Today's guests are Yurun Van Urla, Portfolio Manager of Global Fintech Equities at Lombar Odier, and Arno Vorman, partner at Dentons. Hey, Arno, Yurun, welcome uh, to Paytech Talk. Can you two introduce yourselves and tell us what you've been up to uh, lately? Yeah, it's my uh, pleasure. Thank you uh, very much for having me. Uh, my name is Jeroen van Hoelen. I'm uh, the portfolio manager for the Lombardier Fintech Fund. Uh, I've been doing that for the past uh, eight years now, where we invest basically in the fintech theme, of which payments is a, is a small subpart, um, and uh, all listed companies. And besides uh, portfolio manager, I'm also the uh, vice chairman of the board for uh, Modex, which is a cryptocurrency and blockchain company. Uh, which is also uh, involved in payments. So I see best of both worlds. I see both the listed side and the uh, and the private side. And um, yeah, with that, we hope to uh, generate good returns for our clients. Thanks. Thanks, Jeroen. Arno? Yeah, hello. And um, thanks for having me in this podcast today. My name is um, Arno Voorman. Um, I'm a partner with Dentons uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, and I'm a fintech uh, and payments lawyer. Um, so my yeah, area mm. is um, uh, regulatory uh, law uh, and advising um, yeah, various um, payment institutions, uh, e-money institutions, uh, of course also banks uh, and tech companies uh, yeah, on pretty much um, everything in the, in the payments uh, and also now in the crypto space. <laughs> so very exciting and well, also exciting to be uh, here with you today. Oh. Well, thank you both for coming. And, and uh, as a first question, since I have you both here, so what's, what trends do you see in sort of M&A and payments? Is there anything you've uh, noticed? Yeah, actually, uh, within payments, uh, M&A is uh, historically seen already a very important topic because scale is very important in payments. The, the bigger you are, uh, the more efficient and the more operating leverage you have. Uh, so we see um, a couple of years ago, big, big uh, mergers. Uh, between, for example, First Data, and, uh, which ultimately led to, to, to the Fiserv conglomerate that's now there, and we have Global Payments, and we have uh, FIS, all of them basically um, growing through M&A. Um, and this is actually the fastest, uh, the fastest uh, way to go. However, um, maybe the coming period <laughs> will not be about uh, M&A necessarily and growing, but it will be about getting the value out of the M&A. Um, and maybe we will see some divestors or uh, or, or split ups in order to to get that value out of those big bigger conglomerates uh, that formed in the past, but it's definitely an important topic. Yeah, I think um, and I agree with uh, Jeroen. Um, I think uh, we have seen uh, yeah a lot of consolidation um, in the market um, and the, uh, the elephants uh, that are already there in the payments market uh, have even became uh, yeah much larger. Um, I think that is also uh, a trend uh, which is, I think, logical. Um, also looking to, yeah, uh, cost of compliance. Um, it's it's probably for the smaller payment companies, uh, yeah, quite, yeah, uh, challenging uh, to be profitable. Um, so cost already drives a lot of companies mm-hmm. to to grow uh, bigger. Um, I think. Yeah, bigger companies yeah, are also more attractive uh, for uh, their clients, uh, for retail clients or for merchants, uh, because yeah, there's more to offer. Um, but I think and, and, um, hey, 
uh, also uh, looking to at the recent investments, uh, let's say of Mastercard and, and Visa, um, that that you see also now. Well, I think what I should call a strategic M&A. Um, so they both have invested mm-hmm. um, in uh, European companies with uh, PC2 licenses, um, and yeah, they they are basically already. Uh, looking into yeah, new products um, and yeah, uh, staying relevant in the coming years yep. um, with all the new services that um, that are yeah, possible under the new uh, European legislation. Yeah. I think one of the big issues uh, with M&A is always price uh, because you know, when do you build in-house and when do you acquire? Uh, and what I do see now is really a bifurcation in the market with companies that have gone to stellar uh, valuations of 10, 20, 30 uh, billion over the course of just one and a half, two years, um, and and others actually uh, dropping dropping back and uh, and being actually very attractive from a valuation perspective. So, what we see as well is um, that momentum in those names will determine who is going to acquire and 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 who not, and and how it is actually going to be paid for. Um, for example, we see some of the, the smaller companies now trading at market caps, which are so big that uh, through the share issue, they can easily buy up any bank or whatever, uh, wherever they want in order to get all of the licenses, as you mentioned, Arne, um, and, and then uh, grow uh, grow with that. Um, but it needs to make rational, it needs to make sense, basically. Um, and the, the strategy that we saw a couple of years ago is that actually synergies were, were always pretty substantial because two nice companies come together and then you, you strip out the extra cost and uh, and, and you get become much more efficient and basically the whole story pays for itself in the long run. Um, but now, today, that whole M&A uh, game is much more difficult because you need to do your valuation work because overpaying in a deal just means that you will be value destructive for a very long period in time. So although M&A still makes a lot of sense, especially in payments, um, I think valuation is definitely uh, higher up the agenda than it ever was before, even for strategic deals, um, because uh, yeah, it doesn't always make sense to, to pay these extreme amounts of money anymore uh, when you can also, for example, build it uh, in-house or, or acquire uh, the skills via another way. Yeah, and I think to add to that, um, it's of course also important uh, have what you are looking for. Um, and if you have want to increase your merchant base uh, as a payment service provider, uh, there is no absolute need to buy uh, a competitor if you only uh, want uh, the merchants of that competitor. Uh, because yeah, buying a licensed company, of course, also yeah, uh, brings in uh, additional risks. Um, and you have to be yeah, really sure well, what you're buying, uh, and if you do a transfer of yeah, contracts only, uh, yeah, that's maybe sometimes um, yeah, much easier uh, and might fit better with the, yeah, the commercial goals uh, of the acquiring company. Yeah. But what we do see in the, in the latest couple of months, I think, is that it's cool again to do these big acquisitions, right? Uh, so uh, even if the rationale is perhaps not 100% clear, uh, we see companies like PayPal coming out and wanting to acquire Pinterest. We see Square acquiring Afterpay, and then, and all of these buy now pay later partnerships and all of these things. That it's just uh, it's just really high momentum right there. 
Um, and I do think that uh, sometimes the strategic rationale is, uh, is, is actually not there because partnering, as you say, might actually make a lot more sense than, than just buying. Because yeah. buying, you need to also assure yourself that the talent that you have bought stays with the company. And we've seen in the past that that's often not the case. Uh, and that all of the clients actually stick with you uh, instead of going for, for your uh, right. competitors. And maybe it's also FOMO, eh, the fear of fishing <laughs> out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If, if you are not acquiring uh, company A, then uh, have one of your competitors can do. Uh, and I think hey, where capital is not an issue at the moment, yeah, um, yeah that's uh, I think a, yeah. a good market. Uh, if you, uh, yeah, if you're up to uh, to sell your company uh, yeah. at the no, moment. No, from that rationale, I, I fully understand it. However, from an investor perspective, <laughs> I look at it with a little bit uh, different feeling, obviously, because I think that in some deals there's really overpayment, yeah, uh, and it makes no sense at all. And and obviously then. Yeah, you get into these discussions, what's good for the company on the long term and how can you actually achieve that? Do you really require the M&A or the other ways too? And I think now because money is so cheap, uh, the M&A route is just uh, for some taken uh, too easily and, uh, and uh, will ultimately lead to value destruction. Actually, there's been many studies right, on, on M&A um, in the past and there are only a handful of companies that ultimately uh, get the synergies out in M&A. Uh, because most of M&A is actually value destructive right. in the long run. Um, especially now if, if we realize that we're at all-time high valuations, um, that long-term uh, value attribution uh, is, is even more critical to look at. And as an investor, yeah, I'm starting to, 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 get, uh, to get more worried about some of the, of the deals that I see out. Yeah, no, that, that, and that's, that's logical. And I think what, what also adds up there is that uh, the, the champion of today uh, can be yeah, losing uh, maybe in one or two years time because um, a new company um, yeah, was created mm -hmm. and was successful. So I think for uh, financial specialists um, and valuation experts, of course, that's probably a nightmare to to put a number on the company um, and knowing that there's so many yeah, factors uh, yeah. that, that can ruin a business case. Um, yeah, so maybe I'm lucky that I'm a lawyer and, <laughs> and just don't have to uh, well, um, get headaches on, on topics like that. No. Uh, but I yeah, understand that's very challenging. And what I think is, is, is interesting today is that we really see this bifurcated market because we have startups or younger companies which are at massive market caps doing all of this M&A and then at the same time we have well-established companies, super profitable uh, and they are actually trading at multiples which are ridiculously low given their quality and, right. given, and given how yeah. much they earn. Um, and so in the past, uh, the Fiserv's global payments, FISs of this world were actually on the acquiring side. And now, perhaps, given their valuations, they, they will be targets yeah, right. uh, to, to, hmm. to some of the younger companies yeah. out there, which, which, which gathered massive valuations during the last one and a half, yeah. two years, um, or private equity, which now sees this bifurcation as well and sees that there is so much value in those established companies versus, uh, versus the very valuation-rich newcomers on the, on the block, which haven't proven themselves obviously uh, through no, and, and sometimes are basically uh, not more than uh, a deck of slides yep. um, <laughs> um, and, and I think that that in uh, talking to yeah, uh, to, to people in the market and also to startups uh, yeah sometimes probably the only goal is 
have for a startup to be uh, you know, bought out within a couple of absolutely, years. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think you can question whether that is a very solid basis uh, have to, to grow a company. Yeah. Um, but probably yeah, the goal uh, of those you know, uh, startups is yeah, IPO or... Uh, no, it's uh, everybody is after the easy money, uh, right. obviously. And, and we've seen a couple of things now after COVID which have made it possible. And the, the re-resurrection of, of specs, for example, uh, is, one, is one method of unloading this massive uh, amount of VC and PE investments onto the public market and, and growing your market cap really fast. And then combined with an all-time high retail investors, investor base and, and kind of the... Um, the Robin Hood and the and, and mm -hmm. the Reddit community, which can push up uh, a price uh, within yep. a matter of, 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 of weeks and months, yeah, that's that's a, yeah, an extreme cocktail of things coming together, which we haven't seen uh, for a very long time, and which you can ask yourself whether or not that's sustainable. Yep. But maybe that's a different debate. But uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay, good. That was a very lively discussion. So uh, uh, Arno mentioned a good point about staying relevant. And today in payments, staying relevance all comes down to, I, I think, and at least the way I see things, digital payments, obviously. That was a trend before COVID, and that just kind of will push it over the hill, uh, so to speak. So uh, why are digital payments important, just generally, for uh, companies and consumers? Yeah, I think so for companies, it's obvious uh, if, if there is a use case for it and you can make money, then uh, go for it. Uh, uh, for consumers, uh, I think there is there is a very much added value, especially in the financial inclusion part, uh, where previously we had a lot of people, 2.1 billion people uh, around the world, which had no access to any financial services whatsoever because either... Uh, they earned too little or mm -hmm. had too little asset value to be profitable for a normal financial institution to be served. Um, so they got no services at all. And now you see that thanks to um, uh, the low hurdle of digital payments um, and thanks to the uh, enormous accessibility through smartphones and, 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 and other means, um, that these people can actually participate in the whole payment uh, ecosystem. Um, and, and that is very important, uh, not only actually to pay, but also to receive money. Like, for example, uh, with, the, with the stimulus checks, um, we always think financial inclusion is something of emerging markets, but actually 25% of the people in the U.S. are underbanked or non-banked. Of the U.S., right? That's 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 one of the most advanced economies of the world, and yet 25 percent of the of the people uh, don't have any access to it. So when these people wanted to actually uh, receive the stimulus checks from the government, um, yeah, they had no bank account to uh, to to get it uh, deposited on, and. This is where the, the real power of fintech and digital payments mm -hmm. comes together because then all of these fintech initiatives came out and they uh, enabled these uh, these people to cash the checks. For example, companies like Green Dot offering uh, um, pay-as-you-go um, cards which you can simply upload at the, at the merchant mm -hmm. down the corner and you can actually check in on, on that stimulus check. So, uh, so very important. Um, and ultimately, I think also... So Financial inclusion is one part. The second part, I think, is that you uh, make the whole transfer of, of money uh, smart. Uh, actually, paying with physical cash is, is dumb, right? Because this this bill or whatever, this coin, 
doesn't have any trace of where it has been, uh, how it is spent, uh, how fast the velocity is, these kind of dynamics. You have no clue about it. It's just it's, it's money and it's, it's there uh, and, and, and it exchanges hand to hand. Now with digital payments, although not everybody will like it, but at least uh, what it can, you can do much more around the, the payment. You can do analysis on behavior, you can do risk analysis, which helps in the underwriting. Uh, you can you can actually uh, do much more budgeting and targeting of, of spending, um, and this is really allowing um, the whole the whole payment system to be much more efficient, also from a consumption perspective. And in the next step, if we have CBDC, central bank digital currency, we even go to programmable money. Uh, and to some, this might sound uh, horrific <laughs> because someone else is determining what you can do with your money, but. There's also an angle where you can say this is so much more efficient than how we do it today. Central banks today are just pushing and flooding banks with a lot of liquidity and hoping that these banks will then transfer it to their, uh, to their clients uh, and the clients will use it in the real economy. But that is two, three, four steps which you need to take and which all need to align basically to this goal of central banks to, to put on stimulus. If a central bank comes up with a CBDC which is a purpose coin and you can actually, for example, uh, deposit 1,000 euro directly into the wallet of a consumer and with that 1,000 euro they can buy electronics or groceries or whatever. Then you have a very targeted stimulus um, and uh, you can actually, uh, from a, from a economic, macroeconomic uh, perspective, you can, you can do much more with targeting and, um, and, and, and uh, uh, tailored uh, solutions. And again, to some, this might sound as really, really, really uh, hell. But uh, for me, as a payments specialist, I, I like the idea uh, of, of using technology and bringing it also to the, to the payment system to make everything more efficient. But I think, and, and also listening to, to what you're saying, Jeroen, of course, hey, the perspective is very relevant because hey, if you go to the man on the street in the Netherlands or elsewhere in Europe and you ask, okay, why are digital payments relevant um, uh, uh, he, he or she might say oh, well wh why are you asking because hey, they are it's so common already uh, in Europe whereas well, in the US or um, on other continents yeah, they will stare at you and and you don't have they don't have a clue um, on, on what we have uh, here in the Netherlands already and to bring it a little bit to, to my uh, my home, um, we had well, we just bought a new dishwasher, um, and they had this dishwasher has a uh, container for uh, the detergent, and when it's uh, empty, uh, I can program it now. Um, had to uh, had to order already a new one, um, and the payment yeah is done automatically. Um, so on the question, hey, why are digital yeah, payments relevant? Um, yeah, it, it, I think it's relevant to, to give more convenience. Mm -hmm. um, hey, for this particular yeah, example, I don't have to go to the grocery store uh, any longer. Um, hey, it will be sent um, yeah, by, by mail and, and payment will be done automatically. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's relevant to... Yeah, uh, had to 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 had to be active uh, in the economy. Uh, also looking to uh, e-commerce. Um, um, I don't know the numbers uh, by heart, 
but but at least in Western Europe, of course, uh, e-commerce has uh, yeah has uh, flourished uh, enormously. Uh, yeah, that that ties together with digital payments. Uh, yeah, it would uh, be uh, impossible to to, to yeah. pay uh, <laughs> to pay with your uh, dollars on uh, on Amazon. Right. Um, yeah. So it it is. And, and have when we uh, well, met earlier today, I think we said that hey, payments are basically the cement uh, also for the economy um, and where yeah, the, uh, the economy and commerce is, is more and more digital. Um, yeah, digital payments is um, a logical consequence of that. Um, but yeah, the idea and, and looking forward to um, had the digital coins issued by central banks that uh, can be programmable. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I think it also uh, has should trigger a lot of companies and payment companies to had to see uh, have what their role uh, would be once those coins will mm -hmm. be out there. Uh, because it means that that um, had the traditional payment rails uh, will no, no longer be necessary. Um, yeah, and that can, I think, be a real uh, game changer. Um, and yeah, depending on uh, your assessments uh, on, on timing and impact, uh, of course, that can also have an um, uh, impact on, on valuation of, of payment companies. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah. yeah, I think. But we have to separate there uh, the rails right from yeah. from additional services and uh, indeed i think um, blockchain rails or, or crypto rails can can be more efficient than what we have today yeah. especially cross-border uh, not necessarily um, uh, inside a you know for, for mm -hmm. domestic, uh, domestic uh, payments because basically that is already super efficient and, uh, and now with the faster payments uh, initiatives all over the world right it even get more efficient but especially for cross-border uh, the t plus two settlement is still a thing and uh, and uh, and it's very labor and intensive and time consuming yeah. uh, to do um, but on top of that infrastructure you need a lot of additional services as well and this is where many of the companies that that, that you're referring to are also playing an important role for example fraud mitigation you can have a very efficient infrastructure but still you need to see whether or not the transaction is fraudless or not and and you need to do that in a split second yeah. and those services are very proprietary it uses a lot of data lot of knowledge and they will still be relevant in this uh, in this in, in, in this next world so to say of, of tech um, so the companies I, I have no doubt that companies who are relevant today will find their relevance in the new world as well uh, because I don't believe this is disruptive innovation it's, it's sustainable innovation or sustaining innovation in the uh, in the framework um, and uh, a lot of people just like the internet will just accommodate to this new normal and use the technology to, to offer their services uh, however, on the, yeah, on on the, on the consumer side, it will definitely have much bigger, much more of an impact, and it will make payments, um, yeah, go more and more and more to the background. Uh, whereas in the past, it would really, you know, you have this experience. You buy something, you get your card out or your your cash out or whatever, your phone out, and you tap the thing. You put your pin code in. You're interacting with your bank, right? Um, now, especially if it's if it's via biometrics. Uh, you just walk out and you've you've paid. Right. That's it. So I think at heart for companies, the the real challenge is this customer relationship. Um, how do customers even know that they've paid with with you as a bank or with you as an as an infrastructure provider? Because basically, you've you've put it in once. You've put in your the order of preference, 
and that's how you pay. And if all goes well, you you, you never <laughs> look at it back, just like energy and these kind of yeah. things, you know. Utilities, we now only look at, at who is actually providing our utilities because gas prices are rising. But other than that, I guess if you ask the average man on the street who is supplying your gas and, and electricity, it would be very low on their on their on their uh, on their uh, list. Sure. Yeah, uh, and and the same will happen, I guess, to to payments eventually yeah. if it becomes more and more uh, seamless. Yeah, and of course also on 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 design of um, has central bank digital currency because if if um, the design will be that uh, you will be able to hold um, yeah, coins with the central bank uh, without a need um, of, of a bank or other payment service provider yeah that can pretty much uh, be give a blast to to have the current system absolutely um, and i think also for uh, and I'm sure that, that companies are doing that, but uh, the, the time to lobby is right now, mm. um, because now uh, the design is being discussed. And if you want to stay relevant uh, as a bank, um, yeah, yeah, it's better to have your chips on the table um, and make sure that uh, that you're not wiped out. Yeah. No, we were actually in, a, in an investor meeting with Christine Lagarde when she was still at the IMF uh, a couple of years ago. And, and IMF had just published a, a working paper on, on uh, CBDC and the way that, that they actually saw that whole ecosystem uh, taking place. And indeed, part of that, uh, it was not really elaborate, but part of that was the irrelevance of the, the commercial bank. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Christine Lagarde moved <laughs> from the IMF to the uh, European Central Bank. And uh, her narrative has changed a little bit in the sense that she's now saying, um, okay, if you have direct wallets with the central bank, it will probably be for a maximum amount, like a thousand euro or whatever, maybe growing over time to 10,000 euro. And uh, and we still have a, have a place for commercial banks because they have all of these added value services, at least in her opinion. Uh, and so, um, so she, she, she's trying to indeed uh, protect a little bit uh, uh, the banks which are which are now under her supervision yeah. uh, but ultimately you know this is always the, the past dependency with with technological change right um, we have still that old infrastructure because we had it uh, and the fact that it's not necessarily needed anymore in the new one is not to say that it will also not be there anymore in the future because these uh, banks and financial institutions all will try to remain relevant uh, as, and, and add services to their client base as they're doing today as well. Um, even though from a pure technological perspective, they wouldn't even be required to be there anymore. Right. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a continuous discussion. Yeah. yeah so uh, just to wrap this up, in all of this, who do you think will be like the, the winners in this digital payments landscape? So for me as an investor, what I'm looking for is not only um, uh, companies which grab market share very fast, but actually companies which do, which, which, which grow, but grow in a sustainable way in the sense that they are also profitable growing. Uh, what I see today is that there's a lot of disruption, a lot of new companies coming into the market, uh, trying to take market share of, of the incumbents, but almost none of them do it in a profitable way. So they're all externally financed. Uh, meaning that they need liquidity from outside mm -hmm. of their own company because they don't make any profits to, to fund that growth. And the moment that actually the, the liquidity pool dries out, they stop growing. It's as simple as that. Um, so either if interest rates go up or there is an external shock or whatever, I think that actually the best cards are still with the incumbents. 
uh, as I said, I think this is a slow-moving um, uh, evolution. I don't believe in the disruptive uh, 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 yeah, innovation track, but I really believe that this is sustaining innovation in nature. And therefore, the companies which now make the profits, the companies which have the big pools of money available to invest in these new technologies and remain relevant doing so, I think that those will have the best papers in the long run to, uh, to win and, and, and take that market share uh, to them. Um, and I don't really believe in the, in, in the whole disruption uh, story per se. Uh, are there winners and losers? Absolutely, 100% there will be winners and losers because there will be companies which fall behind or C-suites which are not investing enough to, to stay relevant. Um, but it's also not the case that any company which started five, six years ago, per definition, is better positioned to win that market share versus a company that has been around already for 30, 40 years. Um, and, and so this is really the, uh, the playing field that I'm looking at. I think and, and um, going back a little bit to, to PSD2 um, and the new services that PSD2 um, yeah, enabled or regulated, uh, I think that, that the intention was to, uh, to have more uh, retail propositions. Uh, but looking to uh, the market, I think uh, we can say that it is extremely difficult uh, to, uh, to start and to create um, a company uh, that is uh, yeah, consumer uh, focused only. Um, I think it's, uh, well, uh, for consultants, they will probably say it's a chicken and egg problem uh, uh, for an app to be successful uh, and to be attractive um, have from a, a commercial or merchant perspective. You need um, a lot of retail customers um, and it goes, of course, the other way uh, around. Uh, um, a retail app is only interesting if there's a lot of possibility possibilities uh, to use it. Mm -hmm. um, I think and I agree with you uh, that that the incumbents still yeah, have a lot of power there, basically because they have the client base. Uh, yeah, so I think if I would be an investor, um, uh, I would put my money uh, into companies that have uh, merchant propositions or merchant services. Um, um, whether there's yeah a lot had to gain there, uh, looking already into had the the field of uh, these huge uh, payment companies um, uh, that, that grow and grow and um, reach unicorn status quite quite quickly um, yeah it's it's maybe better to to see if you can take yeah parts of that payment chain and and make it uh, make it cheaper better more efficient um, and that that companies that that are out there already that then they outsource has certain activities to you um, have for maybe uh, transaction monitoring or um, identification verification purposes um, so probably I would be looking more a little bit in in the supply um, of payment companies than uh, to the payment companies themselves but you never know. I mean, there can be uh, surprises coming out of other continents. Um, but yeah, I think those surprises usually have a whole lot of money uh, behind them uh, because I think that's that's one thing for sure. Um, yeah, if you want to be successful, um, hey, you need a lot of money uh, to, to launch. Um, 
uh, and also be able to yeah to to take a couple of years um, yeah to uh, yeah to, to not earn anything yeah and that uh, is actually a luxury position today because uh, we are in a in a economic uh, condition and climate that money is basically for free uh, everybody has access to it and every company can try to find their new niche and, right. and to, yeah. to get that market yeah. position uh, what I do think is that actually the situation as we have it today is kind of peaked or at its max uh, in terms of, um, uh, of, of, of how long you can still drag that, uh, that, that enormous uh, amount of free money. And ultimately, if money becomes uh, expensive again in the sense that interest rates go up or expected returns go up, then um, then you will really see this uh, this shift i think going back from uh, to to quality companies and companies that that um, actually earn a profit and are able to 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 be still relevant also if there's not pure and only external financing uh, which is yeah. which is which is funding their growth um, and so from that perspective to know who's really a long-term winner in this sense uh, is also actually to wait until we have a proper economic cycle again uh, and to wait for all of the stimulus to 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 end, mm -hmm. uh, and then to see who ultimately survives. Uh, and we haven't had that for the no. last ten whatever years, uh, and and that has created a lot of yeah zombie companies and and we and, and disruption in terms of profitability as well. Um, but but so if you have a fintech or payments company now um, and you can get a good price, then do probably uh, do this it. is a good <laughs> moment to do so. Absolutely. And this is exactly what we've seen. Eh? Yeah. In the beginning of the discussion, we added as well with the SPACs. This is exactly what the SPACs are doing and what the VCs and PEs are doing. They invested in these companies seven, eight years ago. They now see a perfect exit opportunity. And I'm, I, I'm not blaming them that they do it because basically <laughs> I would do the exact same thing right. if, I, if I have a company. Yeah. However, as an investor and sitting on the other side of the table, you have to ask yourself, what am I paying for here? Because I don't want to be seen as, uh, as a free ATM <laughs> service, yeah. uh, right? I, I want to make a return as well. Um, uh, but it's exactly as you, as you mentioned now, uh, from, from an exit perspective um, or from a funding perspective, for that matter, these are perfect times. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I don't blame the companies to that 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 they try to get as much money as possible uh, and to grow as fast as possible and to expand their market as fast as possible. It, it's logical because the money is for free. Yeah. But ultimately, I say only those that also think about their um, not only the exit as you mentioned, but also their long-term plan to become profitable. That are the ones that 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 ultimately uh, will survive. And to be honest, uh, especially in the last one and a half, two months, uh, or years, sorry, <laughs> uh, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, actually, uh, what I see there is that yeah, most of these businesses which are now valued 10, 15, 20 billion have, have not really a path towards profitability at all. Uh, and it's just yeah, a, a real cash machine for everybody involved until the music stops. Uh, and when the music stops, then you really have to see. Yeah, you need a chair. You, yeah. <laughs> you need a chair, and they are dancing very far away from the chair yeah. at the moment. Yeah. And uh, and those closer to the chairs will will probably sit first and uh, and survive. But yeah. yeah, that that's 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 the game that we're in. That's an excellent way to put it. Those closest to the chairs will actually sit first. That's the way life works, though. I guess yeah. in general. Life lessons, finance lessons, payments lessons. Well, thank you, uh, Yeroon and Arno, for coming by Paytech Talk. And uh, yeah, we'll be seeing you, uh, seeing you around the Saudas uh, these days. You've just been listening to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. 
This podcast solely reflects the opinions of the participants, Jeroen van Orla and Arnold Wormann, and not that of Lombard, ODA, or Dentons. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not investment advice. Paytech Talk is produced by Cognito Media Amsterdam. Thanks for listening.